Unusual Suspects with Owen Brennan, a Go Loud original. Life has a way of catching up on you while you're not looking. One minute you're drifting from moment to moment, your mind wandering back and forth and here and there, and all the while you forget to look over your shoulder. It never crosses your mind to pause and glance back, where you might catch a glimpse of what's coming up behind you. In the late summer of 1993, Sam Miller wasn't looking around him, and he wasn't seeing the way his world was getting closer and closer to turning upside down. And he was blind to the fact that everywhere he went, the FBI was watching. This is reporter Gary Craig. Once they spot them going to this apartment in New York City, the apartment, of course, becomes the hub. You know, in the beginning, when they follow them there, they, they didn't really know that that was crucial. But then, obviously, as they keep going back and back and back, and they, now they're carrying bags with what you know, the, the bulges appear like they could be cash, that's when they realize they're probably onto it. The agents basically then have to figure, okay, we need to get a little more specific as to where it is. At this point, the FBI knew the cash was almost certainly in that block of apartments. But there's roughly 100 apartments in that building. The cash was right there. It was so close they could almost touch it. But it was still so far away. And it's at that point they decided they needed to get closer to Sam. He gets on an elevator in Peter Cooper Village. This is FBI Special Agent Paul Hawkins. And goes up the elevator and one of the agents tries to get on the elevator with him. And he said, take the next car. So <laughs> the agent stepped back and allowed him to go up to a, a certain floor. There was an incident when I started getting a bit suspicious and I started, the way you know something's bad, it's going to happen, but they don't act on it. So I'm going to go in the elevator. I've got the fucking two big fucking things and carrying all the money. The next thing he holds the elevator door open. I just said, no, appreciate you, you going on up. And he, he just seems to like hesitating. So, okay. And away he went, get in, went up. Whatever floor it was we were in, he, was, he went the one below, like, you know. But you get that wee thing in the back of your hair, didn't seem right, you know. But you don't think about it till later, you know. The agent watched the floor numbers tick up as Sam's lift ascended. And then he watched as the numbers stopped. Sam was getting off at the 10th floor. And just like that, the FBI had narrowed it down from 15 floors to one but they still needed more. And that night we had a crew of technicians install a camera on that floor and we watched Sam go into a particular apartment on that floor. The camera was pretty advanced considering that this was 1993. It was the size of a pinhead and it was hidden inside the letter X of the neon exit sign. It's tiny eye staring straight back down the corridor recording in grainy black and white, everyone who came and went from the apartment. And eventually we saw Father Pat go in there as well, uh, sometimes together or sometimes by himself. So we knew that Father Pat was in a little bit deeper than what we thought originally. It's important to remember here, the FBI didn't see what Father Pat was doing once he got inside. All they knew was he was going in and out a lot. That is the apartment full of stolen cash, yes. But Pat says that while he was going to the apartment frequently, that does not mean he knew the money was in there. By the way, it was a one-bedroom apartment, big living room, that. And my deal was 
he could use a bedroom, not the whole, I could have, I could still have access to the apartment. And during that period of time, I made several trips back and forth after he had brought his court luggage in. And, and on one particular occasion, the owner of the apartment who moved to Jamaica asked me to go in and I went in to pick up stereo equipment to ship it to Jamaica where the owner of the apartment was staying. Okay. Miller uses that and he's booked something. The FBI saw us bringing out boxes. Sure they did. From their, their hidden cameras. They were surveying the place. And we did bring boxes out with, with the equipment that was going to the owner. We've already heard Father Pat say he had no idea about the Brinks robbery. He says he thought the cash was from casinos, from Sam's work ferrying money across New York for the casino bosses. And keep in mind, Sam says this is nonsense. He says Father Pat knew from very early on where the money was from. Father Pat also says that during those summer days when Sam was going in and out with the cash, he had no idea what the apartment was being used for. Sam came back, came to see me and he said told me his brother was coming out from Ireland. And he knew I had good houses. He didn't know that to the grapevine. My apartment is very crowded and I need to store some of my boxes and boxes of comic books. He was planning to open a business. It was getting a bit crowded. And could I give him some space in one of the places? Until one day it all became very clear. Now, go back to something else. He had that room and there was two closets there. Walk in, but you could lock them. They were kept locked. Never bothered them. Never bothered me. And I came in one particular day and I see Sam up to his ears in money. I said, what's going on? I said, Sam, this apartment belongs to somebody else. And I told him, hey, Sam, you got to get this out of here. I went and I went to a banker friend of mine and I went to my friend and I got a money counting machine. And he began to count the money. And he taught me, don't worry about that. That's okay. That money will be gone out of here and all this. Up to now, I still had heard nothing about the Brinks. This is in July or August. I never knew it existed. Then Father Maloney shows up one day with this, like, grocery bag, a real thin plastic grocery bag, and inside it looks like a money counter. The money counter, just like the bags bulging with cash, was carried into the apartment in broad daylight. And that alone probably tells us something. It seems like such a careless or reckless thing to do. That it seems either Pat really did have no idea this was stolen Brinks money, and so he saw no issue with carrying a money counter into the apartment in broad daylight, or he knew exactly what was going on, but maybe just wasn't very good at being a criminal. Of course, Sam says Pat knew exactly what the money counter was for. The money counter? <laughs> I said it's like money paving. It's fucking worse, you know. Like with Father Pat and Sam, between Father Pat and the FBI, there's a few pretty key points of difference on what happened. Some things, like Pat entering the apartment in the first place, are maybe a matter of interpretation. Two people looking at the same image, but seeing different things. Some, though, are a much more fundamental disagreement over if something even happened in the first place. They would have people that would stay at the apartment. When one of them would leave in a car, they would tail him in a car. One time they followed Pat, as followed Pat driving away. Father Pat gets to a stoplight. The, the agent pulls up next to him and just watches as Father Pat's like counting some money at the stoplight. And then you know, Father Pat drives off and they let him go. No, 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 no. What the agents said was that they saw me. Now listen to this one. 
stopped at a stoplight on 14th Street, sitting in front of a light, counting money while I'm driving a car? What are they talking about? Total fabrication. I am on 14th Street and Avenue C, according to them. I live another five blocks. I'm going to stop at the traffic light and count money in open public? I'm telling you, it was a total, and I said it from the beginning, it was a confounded fabrication. Those two agents watched Maloney drive away after, as they tell it, spotting him counting that cash at the wheel of his car. They then turned back towards the apartment and decided they needed to take a chance. As a tenant stepped out of the building, they slipped in and took the lift to the 10th floor. So we had a surveillance agent sneak up to the door and she said, I used to run a money counter for hours, you know, when we would confiscate like dope cash and we had to count it and stuff like that. And she said, there's nothing like that sound. There's only one machine that makes that sound. And she put her ear to the door and she heard the sound. She goes, I I would swear on a stack of Bibles that was a money counter. Well, Louis knows a woman outside listening. It's 10,000. Because I got the wee cameras all down the corridor. That's going straight into Manhattan. Plaza number two, FBI headquarters down North Manhattan. They've got the camera right from their headquarters into us. She gives them a thumbs up, got the bastard. And we said, oh, this is not good. They're counting the money. Usually when you count money, you're going to get ready to move it somewhere. So we needed to, like, get on this money before it leaves. So we went and got what's called a sneak and peek which is a warrant to enter the premises but not take anything. At 4am on the morning of November 11th, a five-person team broke into apartment 10D. A bomb squad did a sweep to ensure it was safe and then the agents began their search. In the bedrooms, they found two locked closets. They were able to crack the locks and inside were suitcases and duffel bags. They opened them and each was packed with cash. The agents had brought with them a list of serial numbers Brinks had provided. These were for $100 bills specifically. The sneak and peek warrant only allowed them to look but not take anything. So if someone had returned to the apartment right then, it could have been all over for the investigation. With the clock ticking, they began to check the serial numbers on the cash against that list from Brinks. And there it was. The match. They had finally found the Brinks cash. The long wait for the FBI was about to end. And the next day we applied for a real search warrant, went back in, and we got search warrants for Mr. Miller's residence, the comic book store, Father Maloney's residence in Manhattan and in Florida. November 11th, 1993. I'm here with a crowd of kids between 9 and 12 or 13, walking on the steps. It was as if there was the invasion of Normandy. There were cops in the corner. There were trucks. There were wagons. There was snipers, head, I believe, to be on roofs. 8th Street was covered and blocked off. Major crime squad, major robbery squad, FBI. Everything was here. I'm walking down the steps. I see weapons pointing up at me. I figured there was a mistake and a drug raid of some kind. So I said, this is who you are. I told her I am. Okay, put your hands up. I did. 
take me down, put me in the car. That was it. Then they pour to the whole house. I went to the post office. I was always going to the post office in Queens every Monday. It's like regular clockwork. Busy, busy neighborhood. So I parked the, uh, the old alley up the street, went in, done my usual in the post office. And you know, you have this feeling people's looking at you. But I never thought nothing of it. Then I walk out of the post office and then I knew it's over. The whole street had been cleared. One minute ago, there was thousands of people going about their business. And I fucking knew there and then. I read and they hadn't arrested me yet, they hadn't come for me yet. But I fucking knew and then. I just said, it's fucking over. So I casually let on, we put the keys and all, and I was walking around, just doing a normal walk up to my car. It's parked up a side street, and my heart's going like a fucking drum, because I knew it's over. Something just clicked. And I put my hand right on the car. See, my, my hand touched that car. They were fucking all over me. I had the guns under my head and said, it's over, Sam. You enjoyed it for a year. It's over. We recovered some interesting stuff bags of money at the comic book store and lots of bags of money in the apartment in Manhattan where the money counter was. So we recovered about two and a half million. That wasn't bad, but there was 7.4 stolen. So we had only scratched the surface. And we arrested Mr. Miller. We arrested Father Maloney. And we arrested a gentleman who owned the apartment who had obviously lent it to, I think he was a friend of Father Maloney's, actually, uh, because we figured he had to be in on it. Today, the investigation shifted downstate. This is a portion of the $7.4 million taken from Brinks in Rochester last January, found in various Manhattan locations and put on display today by the FBI. Last night, a man who claimed to be a victim of the robbers, Thomas O'Connor, who is a former Rochester police officer of 20 years, was arrested here in Rochester. In New York, authorities nabbed 61-year-old priest Patrick Maloney and 38-year-old Samuel Maloney. A little over $2 million was found at the apartment. Roughly $178,000 in cash was found at Father Pat's home and another 13000 at the comic book store. The FBI also raided Sam Miller's house with his family there at the time. In Rochester, police arrested former Brinks guard Tom O'Connor shortly after the arrests were made in New York City. Something very remarkable happened, uh, On, We were in the back of the car and they were heading downtown, lower Manhattan, where they were going to take us to be arraigned, blacked out. Went black. So they had to take us over the bridge into Brooklyn to arraign us. All the courts in the whole area. And I remember one cop looking at me and said, my God, this is strange. I said, sure, it's not strange at all. I said, you should not mess with the Lord's anointed. I just, you know, I joked with them from the beginning. Now, a very remarkable thing happened in the car. One of the agents says to me, um, I said to him, what's going on here? He said, well, you don't know what's going on? And he said, uh, why am I being arrested? What's happening? As true as I'm looking at you, I didn't have a clue. And if they gave me a lie detector test, they would see it right clear. I hadn't a clue. So I said to me, Oh, you're being arrested for the Brinks armed robbery. I said, what? Are you kidding, boy? I said, am I relieved? Why are you relieved? Because you've obviously got the wrong man. But you know what they added on to it? Oh, 
I thought you were arresting me because of my involvement with the IRA. Now, what utter stupidity that a most secret organization that totally denies that it even exists is going to tell that. It's like the mafia saying, being stopped for a ticket and saying, oh, thank God it's only for a ticket. I thought you were taking me in because I belong to the mafia. It's absurd. Did they actually claim you said that? They claim that is there in written in evidence. I can show you in writing. Now a fourth man is in custody. Charles McCormick, 29, of Milford, New Jersey, was also arrested last night based on verbal authority of the United States attorney. Authorities say they suspect some of the cash may have been intended to help the Irish Republican Army. From what they've retrieved, it appears roughly half the money is gone. Charlie McCormick was that man. He was the owner of the apartment where the cash had been kept. He was a friend of Father Pat's and a school teacher. On the day of the raids, the FBI hadn't made a decision on if Charlie should be arrested or not. So far, all they knew was that he owned the apartment, but he had never been seen there or in any of their surveillance of the other suspects. But then, in a coincidence that caught the FBI off guard, when the armed agents swarmed Father Pat's Bonita's house, there he was, one Charles McCormack, owner of apartment 10D, currently visiting with the priest. Agents on the scene had a brief chat with Charlie. They did a bit of small talk followed by some more pointed questions about the apartment. But Charlie McCormack wasn't one to trust cops. He had a similar worldview to Father Pat in that regard. So he said very little. And when word came down to the agent on the scene that McCormack wasn't to be arrested, he was let go. But then, a couple of minutes later, that decision was changed. It came back through to agents at the house that they were to arrest McCormack, but he was gone. This led to the farcical scene of FBI agents running around the Lower East Side neighbourhood, searching for the guy who had, just two minutes ago, strolled away from the crime scene, swarming with police officers. Luckily for them, Charlie came back. He walked up the street, carrying a pizza. He was arrested and taken down to the FBI HQ in Manhattan, along with Father Pat and Sam Miller. When the FBI raided the apartment that night, they found it bare, except for Charlie McCormack's Che Guevara and Malcolm X posters on the wall, a can of soup and some salt in the press. There wasn't much furniture, but there were latex gloves, a calculator, rubber bands and scraps of paper with dollar amounts written on them. Then, of course, there was the money counter and most important of all, the cash. They went back to the closet where they had the day before found the money and inside they found a tweed suitcase with $330,000 inside. And that bag also had a tag inside it, an Aer Lingus tag, with a name on it. Father Patrick Maloney. There was so much cash in the apartment that it made more sense to weigh it than count it. And it weighed in at 175 kilo, about the weight of two grown men. Meanwhile, back in FBI headquarters, Sam Miller and Father Pat were facing questions. And then they brought me down to Plaza One down Manhattan headquarters, you know. Charging you, try to get there to talk, you know, give you the option. Sam, I'll come to you first because you're married to kids. And America, they call it squealing, getting down first. So that's, that's a term you use, getting down. We're going to let you get down first, Sam. So in our words, you squeal on the rest, go walk. Or I'll get a very low sentence, you know. It's all these big Irish American FBI guys, you know. Town of bullshit, you know, where their granny's being fucking cork and all that crap, you know. And they says, Maloney's giving you up now and open the door. And you can hear Far Pat fucking voice all over the place, you know. And, um, you said you don't know him. He knows you. 
you know, all I can hear is his voice. You don't really see him, but he's fucking, you know, you just, the voice is streaming, you know, all over the place. Fuck's sake, shut up, shut up. I wouldn't talk. So they were getting annoyed with me and all, because they'd never met this before, this sort of talk, and they'd never met somebody who just stared at them after offering them freedom. Just doesn't happen in America. Americans tout like fuck or like rats. You know, they're all big tough guys until it comes down to you know, sit themselves. So they never shocked that I wouldn't take a deal and I wouldn't talk to them. I said, it's all right. Didn't end up absorbing. Black guy walked in. All smug. He was eating a hero sandwich, you know. He says, uh, you know me? Oh, you know me all right, don't you? You recognised me, didn't you? You recognised me at the elevator, didn't you? You, you, caught, you caught me, didn't you? I wouldn't say anything, but I just kept staring at him, you know. I said, oh, you're a tough guy, eh? Tough guy. So I see that wee place you're in, in uh, Belfast, what do you call it? Hitchy Plaxer's room? That sissy place? Where the pussies are? He says, you're going to a real fucking prison. I said, well, a real prison, mate? You won't fucking last two minutes where I was, you know? Yeah, we're going to sort you out. So I said, this Irish American, you know, Notre Dame and all, and so, oh, yeah, I mean, all that bullshit, don't we worry about them fucking three bastards, you know? You look after yourself, Sam. Your wife, your kids. Just uh, let me know what happened there. Who was who was master? Was O'Connor? Come on, come on. Because this still won't be our for long. We're going to offer to Maloney next. But you have to take it now. Father Pat and Sam were brought down to a preliminary appearance before a federal judge. And it was then that they saw Charlie McCormick. I saw Charlie McCormick over there. And I said, what's Charlie doing there? And they told me they'd been to the apartment up there. Now, I knew the money had been there. I said, I said, gentlemen, that man over there, I called his attorney. I said, he subleased the apartment to me. I changed the locks. He had no access. Just true. We know now that Sam and Father Pat disagree on many of the details in this story. But it was when Sam saw Charlie and heard who he was that the first split opened up in that relationship between him and Father Pat. So, uh, went down the stairs, surrounded by FBI guys, you know. By less time the news, it was all over the news, all over the whole America, like, you know, this fucking thing, you know. And they put me in the elevator. So Maloney's here beside me, handcuffed, and he's still screaming his head off, you know. I'm there, I'm standing, next thing this guy walks beside me. I take it for granted, he's an FBI guy, because the FBI's all pulling him. And he just, so next thing he put us in front of the judge and put this guy in front. I said, the fuck is this? This guy's name's Charlie McCormick. Who? The fuck is it? And he's in one of the apartment. He's a co-conspirator. He was involved with Miller. He was a mastermind too, like Miller. All the shit of telling lies about this fucking poor guy, you know? This guy's just came back from his holidays. And arrest him. Pat's telling me it's his apartment. Charlie's fucking shattered because Pat's used it for fucking all the headway money. You know, the fucking shit was unbelievable. Pat had told me it was his apartment, you know, because he owned a lot of real estate. Him and his family owned different buildings and all that stuff. So it was no big deal to me. Just minutes before he was to go in front of the judge, the FBI decided Charlie McCormick wasn't their guy. He was free to go for now. Father Pat and Tom O'Connor were granted bail. But for Sam, it was a different story. Maloney got bail. And Tom got bail. The only cunt that didn't get bail, of course, is me. And the FBI said to me, we've got a special thing for you coming. You know, that's what they said to me. They took me out. So I never thought anything of it. Just, you know, you're feeling sorry for yourself. But at the same time, you said, well, you fucking brought on yourself. You know? So I had this thing called uh, diesel therapy. Quite horrendous. See if the Russians used it. Fucking outrage, you know. 
He said to me, he said, do you, do you know what diesel therapy is? I know, I'd never heard of it. He said, well, you're going to find out for the next year. And you're going to be a very special guest of ours. And you just fucking shit yourself. You know, you think yourself, I'm in the hands of the FFP, what they're going to do to me. You know what I mean? They're just going to put me in a hole somewhere and torture, you know, you think all this crap, you know? But what it was, was the trucks that they drive around in, it's a cup of diesel. So they put you in the back handcuffed, no matter what the weather is, and you've just got a wee jumpsuit on you. It doesn't matter if it's fucking 90 below zero, whatever the fuck, you know? And you're in the back of it with wee slippers on you, and all you can smell the fumes for diesel. And so it's deliberately done, like, because it's come up into a wee glass cage at you, and, you know? And all you get is these terrible fucking headaches. I'm talking about violent hate. Like somebody's got an axe and they're fucking just constantly, you know? And then they're giving you, you live on uh, spam, you know, it's horrible meat and milk. And that's what you live on. That's what I lived on for a fucking year. In the back of vans, being moved all around America, from jail to jail. But that was the start of the nightmare, like, going into penitentiary. They kept me into prison by three o'clock in the morning. Kick into your cell, there's your bed packed. You're fucking dressed. You can't believe it. You just want to get in the bed, you know? You haven't slept in fucking days, all this travel. Get your bed made. You're just about to get in it. Fucking screw called you. You're getting moved in our prison. Might be fucking 600 miles away. That was a miles away. I've been on for a fucking year. Think about it. You know, never sleeping. Never eating right. Smelling and fumes. You know, that, that's how I'm fucking don't, don't deserve it. I'm just saying, you know, like, it wasn't fucking easy, like, you know what I mean? Father Pat was spared the same treatment. He was released on $1 million bail. As part of that bail, he had to submit to wearing an electronic ankle tag. He invited his supporters and members of the press around to his home to view the tag being put on. My reaction to the charges is that they're totally preposterous. Father Patrick Maloney last night returned to the shelter on Manhattan's Lower East Side that he's run for 30 years. In this neighborhood, it's clear where sympathies lie. The bracelet isn't going to hurt me. In fact, the bracelet is going to help me. It's going to be help me to be uh, a monk in my own little monastery and live a good life here. It will be the first of many media appearances in the run-up to a trial that would see the four accused men and the FBI go head-to-head. Next on Unusual Suspects. You know, the US government framed him. Literally came in and said, we're the FBI and you are guilty. And we're watching the tapes of Mr. Miller accessing the money. And then there's a tape of Father Pat accessing the money without Mr. Miller. And Mr. Miller looks at that and goes, no, why do you go and do that? So next thing I see at the fucking corridor, there's this figure walking down. It's Father Pat. My case was an entire fabrication of testimony, not testimony. That's not what happened. I don't know what happened. Did somebody's tied on us? I don't know, more than likely. Unusual Suspects is produced and presented by me, Owen Brennan. Sound production is by Lachlan Hart. Siobhan Walsh was production assistant. Unusual Suspects is a Go Loud original.